welcome to the Cordwainers In Your Shoes podcast. My name is Katie Greenier and I'm the Creative Talent and Network Director at Pentland Brands. Cordwainers are shoemakers and today the Worshipful Company of Cordwainers works to promote footwear design and entrepreneurship in both education and the fashion industry. To celebrate the company's 750th anniversary, we have recorded this series to explore what it is like to live in the shoes of those who make them. Today, I'm joined by Dominic Casey, a true bespoke shoemaker and master craftsman, deeply embroiled in not only performing the craft, but passing the craft forward to future generations. With 35 years of footwear knowledge in his soul, Dominic radiates positive energy inside to out. His eclectic British style is beautifully intertwined with the US gentleman's attire. He does wear a bolo tie and cowboy boots really well. For many of his bespoke customers, students and alumni, he definitely has made an impact. He has the ability to make the sun shine in a room and make the world a much richer place. He is determined that his legacy will be to see the longevity of his footwear craft remaining true. Dominic and I are both cordwainers members of the ancient city of London's livery company, which has been supporting shoemakers for the past 750 years. Dominic, explain to us what you are wearing, because you look incredible. Oh, well, that's very nice of you to say so, and uh, thanks for having me, Katie. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, So I'm wearing a a jacket that, um, you know, when I first went to the tailors as a young man many years ago, um, I decided I wanted a touch more of a country and western look. So I downloaded some pictures of um, sort of country and western bands from the 50s and I took them along to the tailors and said, look, this is how I'd like my jacket styled in the future. So, um, but I've always also been very interested in English tailoring. So I'm interested in the contrast between classic sort of western cutting, but this is with a classic bespoke blue blazer fabric. So I said to them, I'd like it to look a bit like a blazer, but with a velvet collar and other bits and pieces. So uh, yeah, and maybe we'll come on to this, but in the 80s, I was really influenced by the Shakers and the Shaker people. Um, It was a very strong design philosophy and theme in the 80s. We used to have a shaker furniture shop in just off Oxford Street and stuff like that. And um, of course, you know, I became interested in them. I looked them up in Pennsylvania to see what they looked like. And they all were all these kind of high-waisted trousers, uh, placket front shirts and uh, braces. And I've never managed to get out of the high-waisted trousers and the placket shirts since then, really. Well, you look incredibly distinguished. Oh, and so I feel you. absolutely honoured to be here with you today. I wish I'd tried a bit harder. Should we start off? Where did you grow up? Tell us about your early, early childhood, your life. Where did you grow up? Right, uh, South London, really. I grew up in South London. You know, fascinating story. I, You know, for many years, I didn't have a father. My father left when I was very young and my mum brought me up on my own until one day she decided she was going to write to her MP and moan about the amount of tax she had to pay as a single mother. And uh, the story goes in our family that uh, the only way the MP could sort out our tax affairs was by marrying my mother and taking on the family which is exactly what he married your mother so she went to complain about her tax he married her and uh, i got a stepfather so we grew up in the south of london um that's an incredible story yeah forest hill comprehensive school and um you know did a sort of a classical education really when did you first find out about your love affair with footwear Oh, gosh, it wasn't really until uh, a, a solid midlife crisis in my mid-twenties, really. I d- did a classical education. I'd had a degree in geography, uh, trained as a, 
uh, postgraduate management studies and was working as a management consultant in the early 80s. But I decided I didn't really like it. I didn't like being in an office. I didn't like wearing a suit and tie and I didn't want to be a management consultant. So I thought, what on earth was I going to do? And as I said to you before, I was interested in the shakers and I noticed that they were all craftsmen and they had a big philosophy about making everything look beautiful. And so I said to myself, what I'm going to do is I'm going to become a craftsman. But I had no idea what I was going to become a craftsman as. So um, I was working as a management consultant for Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery. And they had a very good exhibition organised by the Crafts Council. On sh It was entitled Shoemaking Through the Ages. And because I was working in a museum at that time, uh, I saw the exhibition and just said to myself, you know what, I'm going to become a shoemaker. That's what I'm going to do. So I, I had no idea about shoemaking. I, I thought, how on earth do you become a shoemaker? But I found out about Lobs, the Royal Bootmakers in St. James's. I wrote to them and they said, well, we've never really had anyone like you ask for a job before. Because you must remember, it, at this period, shoemaking wasn't popular. I mean, a lot of firms just got people from the 16-year-old school leavers from the job, uh, from the labour exchange, really, to fill their apprenticeships because nobody particularly wanted to join. So they said, well, we've never had anyone like you write to us why don't you take some time off from the business and come and spend some holidays with us and that's where it started really you know it started so was it from... like an internship then with lobs or... no I just went down there for a couple of weeks <laughs> in my summer holidays I took a couple of weeks summer holidays and uh, I went to work at lobs really and uh, just to see Mr Eric Lob asked me if whether I'd like it and whether I wanted to stay so that's kind of how it started. And then I found out about Cordwainers College and thought, oh, maybe I ought to go and study um, some form of shoe design um, because I had no experience, really. Uh, but how did you realise, because you talked about a craft and you talk about the shakers, how did you discover that you were good at craft? Because a lot of people wouldn't be able to turn their hand at craft. You know, they wouldn't be talented. Yeah. Whereas it, it seems like it was a almost a serendipitous Well, what match. I did was I looked back in my younger life and thought, what did I actually really enjoy doing as a young person? I mean, as a child. And most children like to make stuff, you know. And as a young kid, I remembered making stuff, really. So, and that's what I look back on, you know, in my 20s, I didn't really want to be a management consultant. So I thought, well, actually, what actually made me happy? You know, making models, making things, making bits of architecture, boxes, anything, make anything really. So I thought, well, if I could get a job making something, then maybe that would be quite a good career. And I just then decided on shoes there and then really, the exhibition, it could mean anything. It feels so like, like a story that was meant to be, you fell into the all right hole. Yeah, I think I was very lucky. I was very lucky. And, you know, so I think anybody has to have a little bit of luck. So I just fell into an all right place, really. I mean, it's interesting because when I got my first shoemaking apprenticeship after Cordwainers, it was very difficult to get an apprenticeship even in those days. And after about a year, I was thinking about giving up. And I'd just been offered a job. I'd, I'd sent in a tape to the BBC to train as a journalist. And the BBC had just offered me a job to train on their journalist uh, radio journalist programme. And just then I also got offered a job as an apprentice shoemaker. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to be a radio journalist or am I going to be a shoemaker? And so I just chose to take the apprenticeship as a shoemaker. So you went to Lobs, you did some in in the holidays, and then you, you went on and did the Cordwainers footwear Yes, yeah, so I did the course. National Diploma right. in uh, footwear at Cordwainers in 1983. So I was there from 1983 to 1985. 
Amazing. Yeah. And that was the period when shoemaking and shoe design really began to change. You know, it was a fantastic year to be at Cordwainers. Jimmy Chu had just left. We're in the same year as the likes of Trevor Hill, Patrick Cox was in the same year, Annabelle Tarrant. So there was a whole team of young people who were really going to, in a way, transform and bring uh, shoemaking to the fore, really. So we were very lucky to be there at that period. It was a very vibrant change. And it was the time when shoemaking really began to change and become a recognised independent design thing rather than just being a small ancillary to fashion. And did you feel that energy at the time at Cordwainers? Or did you not know that it was happening until afterwards? Yeah, no, I really felt it at the time. Um, Because a lot of people like Patrick Cox was designing for the catwalk for Vivian Westwood. Trevor Hill was designing on the catwalk at the same time. We had a fantastic, fantastic genius called John Moore who unfortunately died of a drug overdose, who would, uh, he, he set up the House of Beauty and Culture. Um, a lot of us were involved with Judy Blame and the early days of ID magazine and stuff like that. And then we put on, a, I think, a unique exhibition at the Festival Hall of the first shoemaking exhibition ever seen of independent shoe designers, really. So, um, yeah, it was a very vibrant, the early 80s was a very, it was a pinnacle changing time in footwear, I think. It sounds absolutely incredible. So how did you get into the orthopaedic shoemaking? Because it almost seems like it it was the next craft. It was it was learning the craft of footwear, not just designing, yeah. you know, the uppers. You yeah. then learn really about the foot. Yeah. How did you get into what happened? Well, I was lucky enough, I got an apprenticeship with James Taylor and Son in Paddington Street, just up the road there. And um, I was there for 14 years, really. So um, it was a fantastic training. I mean, I started off, uh, I went there primarily to make uppers, really. So I started off making uh, uppers. And uh, the interview was amazing. I said to you, I've never been for an interview, but I forgot. I actually went for an interview to get the apprenticeship and it was the strangest interview it wasn't but people didn't ask you questions this craftsman he showed me a skiving knife and he said to me go away make one of these and i'll show you how to hand skive and then come back when you can do it and that was my interview and i had no idea how do you make a knife who knows about making knives so i had to go away and find out i made myself a skiving knife then i took a whole pile of leather from them And I just went and sat in my workshop at home and I cut up leather and I skived it until, and then I had a little test. He gave me a shape and I had to cut it out for him, skive round it with my skiving knife and fold it by hand. And that was my interview. And when I, when he said, when you can do this, come back and we'll take it forward. So for people who don't know what skiving is, can you just explain? Well, it's just a, a knife which allows you to split a piece of leather in lots of different ways. So there's all different types of skives, which is essentially cuts in leather, but they're flat cuts in leather as opposed to straight cuts in leather. So you're actually thinning out the back of the leather. So, um, and in the bespoke world, that's all done by hand just with a knife. Um, I know factories, they have skiving machines and what have you, but um, that's not the way I learned to do it. And before you had to do that, you actually had to make a knife, you know, which most shoemakers would make a lot of their own tools. So it's an interesting idea that if you actually want to make something, you might need to make the tool to actually make it the way you want it. 
I think it's a brilliant interview technique. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend too many of them. But I always say, whenever I now interview uh, people at Yeah, have you asked Wainers, the same thing? Well, no, but I always want to see what they're wearing on their feet. And I'm always, the first question is, well, what are you wearing and why are you wearing it? Yeah. And how's it laced together? So if you want to be a shoe designer, you've got to look at your own shoes. So, How do you think that your upbringing influenced who you are today? Oh, uh, that's hard to say. I mean, I think it was, uh, I think it's just values. I mean, I think our parents give us values and it doesn't matter what you do. It's the, the values that you actually take with you, you know, and obviously my mum married um, uh, the MP ultimately. And he was, uh, you know, he was from the uh, slums of Glasgow. He grew up in the war in Glasgow and, um, you know, he had a very difficult upbringing. He left school at 14 because his parents couldn't afford to educate him. He went and joined the trade union at the post office, became a telegraph delivery boy at 14. And then he joined the trade union and the trade union educated him. You know, the trade union paid for him to go back to school and, and teach him. And, and then he entered the post office trade union competition and he won a place at Oxford. So he then got to study at Oxford for five years, all paid for by the trade union. So if you come up in a socialist family where you believe in things like paying tax and you believe in education and you believe in health service and stuff like that, that's so he was very influential. And obviously my mother, who brought me up on my own for many years, was very influential as well. Tell us a little bit more about your journey to becoming a master craftsman and teacher. Gosh, well... Teaching, you know, teaching is an interesting journey. Again, I didn't really apply to be a teacher. My lovely friend, Sue Saunders, fellow liveryman, just asked me one day if I'd be interested. She knew that I was a shoemaker and she'd be interested if I would be uh, prepared to come and just teach a pattern making lesson. I don't think they had any pattern making teachers at the time or not enough or something like that down at Cordwainers and so I thought yeah you know I'll give that a go I'll go and um, see if I can share some of the skills that I'd learnt pattern making and designing with the students so it was hard work at first because obviously there wasn't so much written information about pattern making so I can always remember my Sundays like any teacher was spent in days in preparation I used to teach three three-hour classes on Monday and so I actually had to prepare a three three-hour classes on Sunday and there were no handouts there was no written literature so I had to write the whole program really so I ended up writing a program for pattern making uh, and stuff like that really and um, you know I then became interested in the idea of teaching and how do you teach people different skills and um, the way I look at pattern making is not really from a shoe perspective at all I look at it in terms of shapes a lot of people find it easier to understand shapes I mean as designers and, and thinkers we have to think three-dimensionally and so they understand shapes better than necessarily making shoes. So it helps if you teach people about shape making rather than pattern making. And that's, you know, it's interesting because uh, the whole idea, I then developed this idea about reading patterns. Because if you think about it, if you can read music, you can play music. If you can read a map, you can actually get, you know, from A to B. And so if you can actually read a pattern, 
then you can actually make the pattern. So it's a very interesting idea about how you actually take pattern making and teach young people to do it. It's incredible. I bet your students loved you. Yes. Yeah, we had great times as students. And then, you know, when Cordwain has kind of finished in the 2000s, I thought I'd maybe finish being a teacher. I didn't really expect to do much more teaching. But then Sue asked me, they'd had this deal, Cordwainers College with the Royal College of Art, and they uh, had an MA's programme, which they'd started running, but the students couldn't do any practical work when when Cordwainers went to LCF. So Sue just asked me if I'd like to go to the RCA just to teach the practical side of shoemaking for the students there. And that's when we set up the sort of shoe design studio there. And we had 15 fantastic years making shoes with great students. But as I always say, Katie, I learned more from the students than I ever manage uh, to teach them. You know, it's such a privilege to sit there with so many talented young people. Yeah. You know, and I sit there and think, you know, I'm actually getting paid for this. How does that work? You know, so that's a, it was a fantastic thing to do. And then finally, my last teaching thing, which we do at the moment, is with my friend Stephen in Eastbourne, where we have our te- last maker house teaching course where we teach people to make glass. Yeah, I've seen quite a lot of um, this on your website and yeah. it looks absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about it? Well, yeah, we just... Stephen has all of the last making because obviously he turns glass and makes trees and things like that. So we've got all of the woodwork paraphernalia in his workshop and there's really nowhere in the world where uh, a young person could actually go and learn to make a last. And, you know, I think if you're a shoemaker or interested in shoe design, the first thing that you the main point of reference and your main point of research I always say and I always used to say this to the students is this, next time you're in the bath just look at your feet because your feet is going to tell you everything about shoe design and it's going to tell you everything about last making but you need to actually look in a in a really a different way from the way we look at our feet normally so um, the last making is training and teaching people to actually look at their feet and think about their feet in a slightly different way and then carve it into a wooden block so it's a that's a fascinating journey but amazingly in four days we've always had every student come out with a pair of last for themselves you know we've never had one that hasn't made themselves a pair of last in four days and um you know we were amazed people come from around the world you know on our actually around the world they come from the far east they come from australia they come from america you know we haven't been able to run it for 18 months because of covid but we're in november we're booked we've got six girls coming across from germany all of the businesses coming across to do some last making so hopefully it may you know it may just carry on what an amazing like just thing to do to be able to make your own last um it's yeah. something that i'd quite like to have a go at as well so i'll be enrolling Get in myself touch. i'll be enrolling last myself <laughs> What is it? What's the word? Lastmakerhouse.com. Okay, there you go. Right, shall we go on to how did you go about creating your own bespoke label? Because that's a bit of a change of direction. Yes, it was a great change of direction. I mean, I never really thought I'd have a business of my own. People say to me, why on earth, you know, you were more or less in your 60s when you started a business. How on earth did that happen? And I never really particularly wanted to have a business, but the working world changed. And, uh, you know, I found myself in a position where I, 
you know, I was going to either have to set up a business or uh, not work, really. So that's what I decided to do. You know, I, I just set up a business. And that's really, I mean, it's a difficult story, Katie, but uh, I've been a lifelong Buddhist. And when I was in my 20s, I took five vows as a Buddhist. The third one of which is uh, this. It's uh, with stillness, simplicity and contentment, I purify my body. So it's a, it's a vow about being still, being simple and content. And I always felt that having a business didn't match any of those aspects. Mm -hmm. You know, how could you be still, simple and content and run a business? Yeah. And it's perfectly true, you can't. So I'm having a, a great conflict with my Buddhist third vow at the moment as I try and run a business and think, well, is this create? So what I did all through my life is ask myself, does this keep me stiller? Does it keep me more simple? And does it keep me content? And if it doesn't do any of those things, basically, I'm not interested in doing it. But unfortunately, in a running a business, you know, it gets a bit more frantic. So well, it's sort of unprecedented times as well, isn't it? At the unprecedented moment. So, times, like, yeah. Running world... a business in normal days and running a business now. Yeah. Especially a bespoke footwear business. Yeah. A different things so maybe maybe your third vowel can be let off a bit yeah exactly <laughs> take it easy put your I feet would, up I wouldn't be so harsh on yourself yeah. because I just think that you know sometimes sometimes it doesn't pay you to be so harsh on yourself you just got to give yourself a break and just you know rules are meant well, to be broken a bit yeah. anyway yeah I'm all for breaking a lot of rules <laughs> I, I suppose that's my mantra try and break mm. the rule yeah and do you know what the truth is it's been really difficult the last 18 months, not just for me, but for many people in the bespoke world. But, you know, I think as shoemakers, as a shoemaker, you're always optimistic and you're always enthusiastic. And, you know, you always know that you're going to spend all of your working life making shoes. So, you know, I've got, I'm not going to do anything else. So I may as well just carry on, really. And as Pablo Casals said about playing the cello when he was 93, people asked him why he still practiced five hours a day. And he said he's beginning to see signs of improvement. <laughs> so I think I'm beginning to see signs of improvement in my shoemaking as well. Well, they don't tell my clients that. So you're obviously inspired by the US because you look like a hot US dandy today. Yeah. You travel there a lot. Yeah. Tell us a bit about going. that. Yeah. Well, when I was at Cleverless, I traveled for 10 years for them all over. Well, I actually did the East Coast of America. So I did Chicago and Washington and then down to Dallas and Houston and Atlanta and those kind of cities. And um, that's the way the bespoke world works, really. You know, it's not people don't go shopping like most of us go shopping. You know, if somebody wants a pair of shoes in the bespoke world, he rings up his shoemaker and says, get on an airplane and come over here, really. You know, I need some shoes. You know, so, um, so, and, and what you realize is when, when you actually do travel is that, you know, in these hotels in America at certain periods, it's like a shopping experience. You know, people will come in and order a pair of shoes and their, and their suit maker is down the corridor in a different suite. And then they'll go into their shirt maker and order some shirts and that'll be it shopping done for another six months, you know. So that tends to be the way the bespoke world works. It's, it is about traveling. It's about going to see clients and it's about going to offer a personal service, really. What is the handwriting the details that go into your bespoke footwear? What are the, the things, what's the DNA that makes it Dominic Casey? Right. I think... 
it, that's really hard to say. You know, I don't necessarily... A lot of shoemaking is pure theatre. You know, I don't particularly make shoes better than anyone else. There's a lot of good shoemakers out there. But what you actually really begin to understand, it's about personal contact. It's about when your client comes to visit you, does he feel comfortable, etc., etc. You know, can you actually have a conversation? You know, is he prepared to give you, let's face it, quite a lot of money to make him a pair of shoes. Does he actually trust you? Does he think that, you know, you're going to carry on the business in the way that he'd be happy with and comfortable with? And that's what a lot of it's about. The other thing is I'm not interested in making shoes that I would wear for my clients. You know, when a client walks in through the door, I instantly start looking at them, wondering how they want to wear the shoes, what will they want to wear the shoes for, what do they look like, will the shoes that they want actually fit them? Because it, Bespoke is not about what I'm wearing, it's about what the clients are wearing but do and you, how the clients are going to wear it. But do you have... I, I suppose a collection that is, I suppose, got your handwriting. Yes. You know that that they know that they've got yeah. a choice of a monk shoe or a yeah. brogue or a, you know, or a long yeah. boot. I mean, is there sort of yeah? Like... I have a very distinctive look to my and shoes. What makes that distinctive but look? The interesting thing is, Katie, I don't necessarily sell many of those shoes. <laughs> most people come in and they want something completely different, you know. And most people wouldn't, you know, wear the shoes that I would wear, you know. And I wouldn't want to make them the wear shoes that I wear to put on their feet. They wouldn't wear them. So they ha do they have an idea of what they're going to get when you come in? No, they've got no idea. Don't some they? people have no idea, How and some you... people have really good ideas. But we just kind of work on it and we talk about it. You know, I want to know well how do you want to wear the shoes are you going to wear them daytime in an office do you wear a suit how do you dress going to the office do you want to do this with them are you going to go to parties in them do you want so we actually have a conversation and try and work out from the beginning how they're going to wear their clothes it's not just about making them a pair of shoes it's about building a shoe wardrobe that matches their lifestyle uh, and the clothes that they already have in their wardrobe really so, so do you normally have more thing. than one do you normally have them one more than one order you know once you've discussed yes, it I think in terms clients. of like okay so well, I, I think it. most clients order a pair to start off with and I'd always say well look we've got to do fittings we've got to get the last right so we need to just make a pair of shoes to start off with I'm overjoyed to say the majority of clients then reorder shoes and say yeah come on let's start putting a whole wardrobe together which is great, really. So you have a workshop in Sussex mm -hmm. and a store in Mayfair, and then you're on the road. Yes. How do you divide this time? Well, really, I mean, the road things, if if we're not in COVID times, I'm in America every 12 weeks. So, um, you know, from ordering to um, actually getting a pair ready for fitting takes 12 weeks. So, and then the next 12 weeks, so every 12 weeks, four times a year, I'm in America. And then London, whenever anybody rings me up and says I'm based in London or I'm coming through London, I'll come up to London. I share a, a, a tailoring atelier with my friend Josh, who is um, a tailor, Burn and Birch. And um, yeah, that's where I see clients in London, really. So it's a mixture of all of those things. And then I'm back in the workshop making stuff in, in the workshop in Sussex, or I'm teaching over at the workshop in Eastbourne. You know, it's a whole combination of things. Do you ever put any secret messages or details into your work? Uh, no. Have you ever <laughs> Maybe I should it? do, yes. Uh, <laughs> you know what, yeah. There's, there's, there's a very famous Hollywood cowboy bootmaker who 
on the inside of the souls always writes, you know, some kind of biblical description or something like that. But I, I've never really thought about that, no. What has been the most challenging project or collaboration? Gosh, well, you know what? And I, I won't actually say who it was for. The most challenging thing was the first thing that I ever did, which was, um, you know, for someone that happened to have a supermarket named after them. And this was, you know, I just left Cordwainers and it was a, a, it was a hand-painted piece of silk that they'd had their wedding dress made in and they wanted a pair of wedding shoes made in it. And uh, it was by far the most uh, difficult and probably expensive disaster I've ever had. I've had a few expensive disasters and that was certainly one of them. So that was tough. I mean, to kick off with hand-painted silk as a shoemaker is, uh, you know, you're straight in at the deep end. And the next deep end is riding boots, you know. There's many a person I've tried to pull their boots off and they've ended on the floor, which is a bit slightly embarrassing. Can't get the boots on, can't get them off. So going back to the wedding story, because oh. <laughs> I feel like I need to pick that yeah. scab a bit more. Not naming names, but did the shoes come to fruition in the end? No. No, so it was a, a, a huge amount of humble pie. Was it, it was a really, it's like all some of these things are really good learning experiences. You know, you, 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 you suddenly think, oh, I've got this fantastic commission, I'll take this on. And it's a disaster. But you learn so much from those disasters. You know, you often end up first time thinking, well, I'll never work again. But uh, <laughs> luckily that didn't quite happen. What has been the most defining moment in your career? I don't know. I'm, I've never even thought of it as a career, really. I mean, I've just had a job as a shoemaker, really. I mean, that's what I do. Is I just kind of make shoes for Is people. there a moment, I mean, though, where you thought, wow, I've made it, or, oh, my goodness, this is incredible, or no, I'm they hoping are that moment, awesome, those shoes? Oh, I, I do step back and think, actually, you know what, sometimes something just comes together and you just think, well, actually, that's a really nice pair of shoes. And there's a couple, there's one on my website, the ostrich leg casuals, or as an American once told me, the dragon skin shoes. And that is an amazingly difficult skin to make shoes in. It's so difficult to actually get a design that suits the last and balances. That is, you know, that's a piece of work, really. I mean, that's a nice looking shoe. If you would want us to know three things about you, what would they be? I'm five foot nine and three quarters, just under five foot ten. I think that's quite important. (laughs) You're a Buddhist? Uh, Yeah, Buddhist. Yeah, Buddhist. Long time Buddhist. Funnily enough, I'm going on retreat on Sunday Um, down in Devon. So that'll be, I'll be sitting on my cushion on the astral plane somewhere, which will be incredible. Something to look forward to. Yeah, so, and uh, I love growing vegetables. You know, my favourite... That's uh, really good. Yeah, no, my favourite photograph of myself, I think, on my Instagram page is with my squashes that I grew on my compost heap. I was I was photographed for um, a gardening magazine and uh, people who grow their own. And I had my pumpkins with me, so that was, uh, that was a joyous moment. I think that's blooming good free things. Yeah, that's, yeah. hopefully (laughs) what have you done that you're most proud of I would say the teaching I'd say the 15 years teaching at the Royal College of Art 
I'm proud of that, you know. I'm proud of the young people that I see uh, that came out of that. I see so many designers now in shoe world that came out of that course. I'm really proud of what we actually did there. And I worked with my friend Sue, my dear friend Sue, for 15 years there. And we had an incredible time teaching talented young people. And that, by far, is the most important thing I think I've done in my life. Yes, yeah, Although I'm planning something else, which is pretty important as well. Do you want to uh, talk about that? Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm planning to... I'm very concerned about craftsmanship and maintaining standards of craftsmanship as we move forward in the future. And in my lifetime... We have lost a mode and a way of making shoes, which is now design, which has now ended up just in museums. And it's the when I was first started learning shoemaking, you could still there was a man in this country who could still teach turn shoes by hand, which is the shoe where you make uh, inside out, you make the left shoe on the right last inside out, the right shoe on the left last inside out, sew them all together turn them inside out and then false last them so that uh, it, it's an incredibly interesting way of making shoes and uh, if you go down to the Clark Shoe Museum in Street there's rooms full of ter- all of their shoemakers were turned shoemakers and there's rooms full of tools and there's ro- pictures of men doing the techniques but of course we've completely lost that skill now gone that will be very difficult to get back so unfortunately, um, riding boots, let's just, my passion is for riding boots and long boots. And we are genuinely losing the skills in my lifetime to make long boots in a, what I would describe as a traditional London way. Now I know that everyone can still get riding boots. I know there's lots of riding boot makers out there, but the point I'm trying to make is that we've, we're losing the hand skills to make a very specific boot. Now, if you think about an English top boot, classic thing that you might see John Ball wearing. You know, that boot was designed and came into work round about, I don't know, beginning of the 18th century, 1710, something like that. We're still making that boot today. Now, if anyone can name anything which 300 years later, we're still making more or less exactly the same thing of, I'd like to know what it is. But the point is we're now beginning to lose that skill. And I think as a cordwainer and as a craftsman, the one thing that I would like to do before I sell off all my tools is to make sure somehow there is a way that we can ensure that that skill remains a living skill. So that's, I guess, what I'd like to do in the future. And I've got plans to do that, really. That sounds really good. I think it would be incredible if you could actually, again, put the craft skills back. Because I think there's quite a lot of young people that would want to learn them, but they just don't know they exist. Yeah, exactly. I think there's a lot of opportunity out there. So I think we're now on to the quickfire round. Mm which is exciting. I'm just going to ask you a load of questions. You've just got to ask, answer them quickly. Gosh, it's amazing. you know I might flounder, Katie, yeah. with this one. If you could talk to the Prime Minister, what would you say? Let's get travelling. Last thing you designed? Pair of boots. What fashion trend do you just not get? Trainers. Are you a morning or night person? Morning. Marmite, love it or hate it? Love it. If you were stranded on a tropical island, what two things would you want with you? Well... Clearly, the Sex Pistol album and a, rail, and a record player. <laughs> when are you most productive? Uh, morning. What was the last thing you fixed? Uh, my bike. Tea or coffee? Tea. Could you survive in the wilderness for a week? Easy. What songs do you know off by heart? Uh, Sex Pistols. <laughs> do you want to give us a, a little 
Ditty of that? No, my goodness. Well, I am an anarchist. My goodness, no. But I'm hoping to have it played at my funeral. <laughs> what looks delicious but tastes terrible? Oh, avocado. Do you not like avocados? No, avocado. <laughs> Would you rather be too hot or too cold? Uh, too cold. On a scale to one to ten, how cool are you? Oh, four. Oh, so quite. You're, yeah, you yeah. are actually cool. Thank you so much, Dominique. It's been an absolute pleasure to walk in your shoes. For more interest in Cordwainers livery, please visit our website, cordwainers.org, or our Instagram, Worshipful Company of Cordwainers. Dominic, do you also want to tell us how we can get in contact with you? Well, you can just, anyone can just email me through my website, dominiccasey.com. Wonderful. Simple. And thanks for having me, Casey. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for coming. And um, it's absolute delight. You're welcome.